guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Cordial Caramantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, quadcast listeners, we have the one and only Dr. Elizabeth Markle in the mix. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. Great to be here with you as well. So you are the co-founder of Open Source Wellness, and you guys are doing some magical things down south. And I'm wondering if you could tell us First of all, what open source is all about and how it came to be. Sure. Well, okay, here's the quick version. Open source wellness is a behavioral pharmacy, and I'll explain that. And our delivery is community as medicine. Hmm. So backing up, I'm a psychologist by training, so is my co-founder. And we both worked in big healthcare systems and in integrated primary care behavioral health for many years. And what we watched during our time caring for patients and consulting with many, many physicians is that most providers, regardless of their license or their identity, are giving most of their patients, regardless of their primary diagnosis, the same for behavioral prescriptions. Now, back then, we didn't call them behavioral prescriptions. We just called them things that doctors are constantly telling their patients to do. Mm-hmm. And, and we started keeping track of them. And in brief, here's what I found. The big four are, number one, you need to exercise more. Number two, you need to eat better. Number three, reduce your stress. That's my favorite. And number four, you need some social connection or some meaningful social support in your life. Probably sounds familiar, right? Exactly. Right. Okay. So then here's the part that would make us depressed. We would then hear the providers deliver these prescriptions and then say something like, good luck with that. I'll see you in six months. Like, take care now. Off you go. And, you know, my co-founder, whose name is Dr. Ben Emmert Aronson, we would look at each other and say, would we ever write a prescription for antibiotics, antidepressants, or insulin and say, good luck finding that, you know, take care now? Mm. And we said, of course not, right? We would say, it'll be at the pharmacy that's on every corner. Your insurance will cover it. It'll be dosed for you. And a helpful pharmacist will make sure that you know how to actually take the medication, not just talk about it. So we, we sort of view the current situation, one, as woefully inadequate in that we're just lacking a delivery system, right? Mm-hmm. 
as a, as a country, as an international community, we have this incredible infrastructure for the delivery of medications. Mm -hmm. It's called the pharmacies. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the behaviors and the social experiences that we know actually underlie health and well-being, the, the prevention, management, treatment, cure for the chronic diseases that are driving skyrocketing costs, there is no delivery system and it becomes an issue of privilege, right? right. So if you, if you have the time and the money and the sociocultural capital to stroll into Pilates or shop at Whole Foods, you have a shot at these behavioral prescriptions. But if you don't, you don't. And we see these patients coming through our emergency department over and over again. Hmm. So so Ben and I said, we're going to design a behavioral pharmacy that delivers on one universal prescription, and it's those big four. So we say move, nourish, connect, be. Physical activity, healthy, move, health, healthy food, social connection, and stress reduction. Mm -hmm. And we said we're going to do this in a way that's experiential, meaning we're not going to just tell people what to do because, frankly, they already know. Most of them already know. They have access to the Internet. It's not, it's not rocket science what we're telling them to do. But we're going to actually create fun and socially rewarding and sustainable pathways for people to engage in these. Wow. And secondly, we said this has to be democratized, that we're not going to replicate the boutique wellness system, but we're going to create something that serves the people and the communities that need it the most. Mm. I said a lot there. Does that all make sense? Well, I got to tell you, it sounds incredible because as you said, we always, as physicians, we will tell people, yeah, exercise, eat better, reduce your stress, you know, but the, what is lacking is how to do that. What's the, how do we create that magic? And so this is what I, this is why you're on the show. Exactly. Like what, how is open source making this happen? Sure. Well, we actually make it happen in slightly different formats in our different models. So I'll say that we do this work in clinical healthcare. We do this work in low income housing for populations that are not so comfortable coming to the clinic. We do this in community settings and in corporate settings. But here's what's common to all of them. Most of our participants are prescribed in by a healthcare provider, could be behavioral health, primary care, or a specialist. And the doc would say something like, I'm writing you a prescription, but it's not for medication. It's a prescription for participation in a community. And your initial dose, which is about 16 weeks usually, is covered by your insurance. So once someone is prescribed, the first thing that happens is they get a phone call from one of our health coaches. I'll say at Open Source Wellness, we don't employ licensed medical professionals who are amazing but expensive and sometimes trained to be the expert. We employ health coaches and peer leaders who lead with their experience, with their humanity, with their vitality. They, they create an entirely different demedicalized experience of well-being. So anyway, the patient gets a phone call from this health coach who has some time to talk with them, 15 or 20 minutes, who says, we got your referral. We're so glad that you're going to come join us. Like, let's talk. Let's get to know each other. What hurts? How would you like your life and your health and your well-being to be better? And they talk and they start to build a relationship. And then um, when their 16 weeks start, we bring in new patients the first week of every month. They are on site physically together for two hours a week for those 16 weeks. And during those two hours, we actually do 
the big four, move, nourish, connect, be. Mm. So we usually have a group of somewhere between 20 and 30. That's the large group that comes together. And we do a quick check-in. And then we start with about 20 to 25 minutes of fun physical activity. That doesn't feel like exercise, right? It's not like like tough times at the gym. It's playful. There's more laughter than anything else. Um, and we're really trying to give people the experience that physical activity can be social and fun. And then everybody sits down in a giant circle and we do about five minutes of some sort of stress reduction. And this could be meditation, but, but it's pretty dogma free. We're not teaching one particular tradition. We're just helping people practice taking their nervous systems from exertion and and, you know, highly social, highly, like sort of high states of arousal to calm and quiet and stillness. So we practice that. That's followed by what we call a spark. We used to call it a lesson. And then we realized that um, the best of these are not didactic. They're not a lecture. They're not a class. They're an experience. So it's some sort of learning experience that has to do with one of our big four, move, nourish, connect, be. So we have sparks around nutrition. We have sparks around interpersonal relationships, like how to create boundaries in relationships. We have sparks on implementing stress reduction and mindfulness in tiny moments during your day. Sparks on how to cook well on a budget, etc. So there's some sort of about 10 minute highly experiential experience. And then the large group splits up into small groups. And a small group is six patients, one health coach, and one peer leader. And that peer leader is a graduate of the program. And that group then sits down around a table and they have a meal together. Could be a snack if it's the middle of the day at a weird time. But they then have about 40 to 60 minutes to talk with each other, to get real with each other. And yes, they talk about their health and their diagnoses and their well-being, but they also just talk about their lives. They talk about their families and their traumas and their hopes and their dreams. And, and it's not group therapy, but it's highly, highly therapeutic. It's, mm. it's delivering the essential ingredients of therapy that make it so powerful. And at the end of that, the group does some sort of closing rounds of gratitudes and setting goals and declarations for the week to come. And then they close for the day. And in between weeks, all of these participants are on a text thread with their small group. So if they, at the end of the session, we, we, all, we have everybody write their own prescription. So it's not the coaches or the doctors writing prescription. It's the participants themselves. And they say, all right, I'm going to go for a walk every day this week. Or I'm going to reach out to that friend that I haven't been in touch with in a year. But then on the text thread, you know, the coach is going, hey, how are you doing with that goal? And the peer leaders and the participants are all supporting each other and providing accountability in between weeks. So it's a pretty high touch, you know, like generating a tremendous amount of social support and social cohesion focused on health and well-being as an intervention. Wow. Elizabeth, that's, that's, um, I got to commend you for such a great initiative. Like what I like about it too, like I wasn't sure how I felt initially about how, you know, say you have a patient and maybe they, they really need more of the nutrition side, less than the exercise side. But I actually think it's a good idea to package it all together because maybe, you know, maybe that exercise could be a bit more emphasized. Maybe that connection will actually amplify my, my sense of well-being. 
And um, I don't know, I, I, there's a lot to that. And I, I really enjoy that sense of, or how you set up that community feel, especially like, you know, afterwards, like you, we're not forgetting about you. You have a thread where people could connect on, on uh, via text messaging. Um, like that, that connection is not lost for X period of time. So yeah, this is, um, this is really great stuff, Elizabeth. I'm wondering, you know, like, have you, do you get a sense of how effective it is? Like, to, to to patients, whether that's through anecdotes or through stories from your patients or through like long-term outcomes in any sort? Yeah, totally. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, just to loop back, you know, your your skepticism about like, why package it all together? You know, what if somebody just wants to work on stress reduction or just wants to work on nutrition? And um, one of our, our early learnings and then commitments about our program is that it's transdiagnostic meaning we don't have the depression group and the diabetes group and the hypertension group because we find that the fundamental universal prescription of move, nourish, connect, be actually hurts nobody and helps just about everybody. Right. And, you know, we do have, have participants who come to us saying, oh, I'm just here for nutrition advice. But, you know, we kind of wrap them into the community and everybody does it together. The coaches, the peer leaders, everybody engages in the whole thing. And often what they find is, yeah, I learned about nutrition, but I also you know, got to pay attention to like, what are the feelings I'm having that are causing me to eat in a way that's not in line with my values. And those who say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just struggling with depression. I'm just here for social support for my mood often say, you know, actually it's the physical activity and the laughter that impacts my mood just as much as the connection. So we've really come to stand by this transdiagnostic universal approach over time. Um, yeah, you asked about outcomes data. Um, yeah, so we, you know, Ben and I are both researchers by training, and so we track the heck out of everything. And uh, we, we find that there's this arc to the results that we see. So very quickly in the program, I'm talking four to six weeks, we see depression scores coming down tremendously. And people start to say things like, um, I just don't feel as alone anymore, or I have a sense of hope. People start to talk about a feeling of belonging. These sort of social and mental health outcomes happen early in the program. And, you know, we're, our depression scores come down by about 50%. Anxiety and loneliness scores come down tremendously. Um, and, of course, I can, you know, we can share all this data on our website. And then sort of second in the program, we start to see um, behavioral markers change. So we see people eating about one and a half more daily servings of fruits and vegetables. We see their weekly minutes of exercise go up by about 50 minutes per week. These are sort of the behavioral process measures. And then by the completion of the program, we're seeing biomarker change. So systolic blood pressure comes down about 15 points. And then, of course, most exciting to the insurers involved, we see about a 70% reduction in emergency department visits wow. from six, the six months before the program and the six months after the program. So, you know, I'm a psychologist, you know, seeing these changes in, in depression and anxiety, of course, are, are highly relevant to me. But as we start to spread this model, it's, it's the potential to tremendously reduce acute care utilization and unnecessary expenditures that really has the attention of the field. 
Absolutely. And that's kind of what spurred this whole podcast was, you know, how do we make healthcare more sustainable, which is what I love about such an initiative. So you're in the States, we're in Canada. Like, is this expensive to implement? Like, this is the one thing that I think a lot of our, you know, government officials or whoever would support this would want to know. Because I know we have different models in, in, in Canada, but maybe explain in the states where you are, like, how is this funded? Yeah, great question. Well, so the first, I'm going to speak at the 30,000 foot label, uh, at the first 30,000 foot level first, which is that if we can prevent a couple ED visits or one bypass surgery, you know, or an inpatient stay, we're way ahead on the cost. So if, if the savings Amen. are going to the right pockets, we all, we all know that we're Amen. coming out of it. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is that um, health coaches are profoundly more affordable and often more effective than highly paid medical specialists. And so if we talk about you know, having people work at the top of their licenses, it's, it's unsustainable that our, pro, that our clinical providers are now screening for all kinds of things. We're screening for food insecurity. We're screening for other social determinants of health. Now we're screening for trauma via ACEs. Um, and then we're supposed to do something about it, right? We're supposed to intervene and make a difference. And our providers just don't have the bandwidth to do this. So mm-hmm. by offloading a lot of that to a community-based delivery system, I think we're also saving money. To speak to how this gets funded, there, there are sort of two pathways you can go. One is that the downstream payers, right, the, the insurer or the, the single payer that's footing the bill for acute care can look at these outcomes and invest in this kind of model. And we're seeing that with the local insurance providers here in California. That's one way. The other way to do this is to integrate our program with a group medical visit which means that you implement the program on site at a clinic or a hospital campus. You have one medical provider, it's usually an MD or an NP, participate in the program and pull patients aside for short individual Mm check-ins. And then at the end of the group, that provider bills for all of the participants in the group. And then if you just do some quick math, um, if we're, you know, down here, we're talking about the federally qualified health centers who are seeing the patients that we're most concerned about. A provider down here might schedule 11 or 12 patients in an afternoon, but on average, given the no-show rate, we'll bill for eight or nine. When, that's, and that's in a half-day clinical shift. That's in a four-hour shift. But when they participate in this group, it's a two-hour group plus then two hours to complete the charting, they're billing for 16 or 18 or 20 or 22, which in a fee-for-service environment, if you're still billing per visit, it depends on your reimbursement rate, but that generates a ton of extra revenue that more than funds the open source wellness program because what our costs are, our coaches, some food, a physical activity leader, it's just not overwhelmingly expensive. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's a tremendous investment and we are sort of in the process of doing the research to build out that case at the broader state and national level. Yeah. And Elizabeth, I got to tell you that from a fiscal point of view, I I think the argument is there for sure. Like, as you said, somebody, 
you avoid one bypass surgery, one ICU admission, a couple of merge visits. Like that is, that's a lot of resources. And so I, I, I just, we still got to encourage our governments to think of things more long-term, which is always a problem. But what you're describing absolutely makes sense. And, you know, there's the, that uh, the idea of having like improved well-being, like even if they do have an illness that they're trying to overcome, they're, they're, they're going to be that much more resilient. They're going to be that much more willing to get out of bed. They're going to be willing, more willing to participate in methods that are going to get, improve their healing. So, you know, I, you, you are preaching to the choir. This is a bit why you're on the show, but it, it needs to be reinforced that, you know, these, there's a lot of upside to, to getting yeah. a, a program such as this. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think, I think finding ways to bridge the clinic community gap and deliver these social and behavioral drivers of human health and well-being is really the only way that we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, James Rouse is famously quoted as saying, a community is a garden in which to grow people. Mm. And I love that. And so at Open Source Wellness, we're always thinking about, you know, how do we create the, the garden, the physical and psychological and social context or environment such that thriving is the natural response to that environment, that human well-being is not, a, not an outcome of wealth or tremendous willpower, but is actually what we do when we are in a context that potentiates it. So I think both in the clinical setting and then in other settings, right, where people work, where people live, where people go to school. I mean, forgive me for being a little radical here, but let's think about our schools, right? They go dark at 3 or 4 p.m. And what we have there is a commercial kitchen, a gym, dining facilities, truth, right? Truth. Right? What if we, instead of just having parents pick up kids, what if families came together in schools at, in the evenings and mm. there was physical activity and a meal provided and social connection for the adults, right? Like what if instead of telling parents you're supposed to shop for healthy produce and chop it and clean it and cook it and then feed your kids and do homework and get them to bed. And then you're supposed to go to the gym and meditate and see your friends. Like nobody can pull that off. What if we actually set up social structures that made that easy? Mm. So that's the long game here. Wow. I mean, and then you get them early too. kids, kids get used to that. Like they're, it's a, a nice model for the kids they're seeing that sense of community. That's part of their life. They want to recreate that when they're older. There's a, you're, you're throwing down some like, uh, that's some like gangster game right there. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I so appreciate that I can share this in this venue here. I, you know, we're not going back to the 1950s, right? We're not going back to the social structures that held people in overly restrictive ways that didn't work for a lot of people. But we need new social structures that potentiate human health and well-being and not just for those who have extraordinary wealth or extraordinary willpower. That's what I would think. Right, you, got, you got me. You really got me thinking because we're just in the midst of setting up a program to like a, a charity essentially to um, help 
um, underserved kids, like to for make sure they get their basic needs, like boots and uh, bus passes, winter jackets, and stuff like that. But imagine you got this weekly program where you know it's nighttime or it's after school. You're you're underserved, but you have this community where you're going to get a meal. You're going to get some activities. You're going to talk with other parents that are in similar spots as you and connect. Um, That could have some exponential value. Yeah, it could. And and with with all respect to doctors who are so good at well-intentioned, they're not necessarily trained to be community builders and group facilitators, right? And so you know, I think a model where, yeah, the provider's there and pulls people aside and supports them with the specific targeted medical connect- questions that they might have, but the actual community is upheld and developed by coaches and peer leaders who are culturally resonant. Um, mm. there's, there's a way to sort of uplift the, the broader community, creating a culture of well-being, sort of an intentional community, really. Um, I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Damn. Consider my mind blown. <laughs> mind grapes. I love it. Because I got to tell you, Elizabeth, as um, as a like hospital, like as an intensive care doctor, palliative care doctor that does no primary care, but like I, I see people at the end of the, you know, at the extreme of their disease course, we, we don't really get a chance to explore. We don't really get a chance to explore some of this. And a lot of these issues I haven't been able to be, I haven't had exposure to, to until doing the show. So that's why I, maybe you're, you're hearing some like enthusiasm and some, you know, uh, joy here. Cause it's, you know, a lot of these ideas are, are fairly novel to me and concepts that I haven't been exploring personally, but, um, I have been fully appreciative of how important these things truly are. So, um, yeah, you got me, you got me, you got my wheels turning. That's for sure. Um, so I always, I always try and end with a positive story. Uh, so can you mention either a time where you felt the program has really made a difference or a, a story where, someone you know that is was involved in open source really got to thrive yeah happily first of all thank you for your generosity just sharing the impact this has on you i think for me i i take a lot of joy in um in helping providers feel that their work regains integrity there's been some work mm. recently about the, the idea of provider burnout actually being a form of moral injury that absolutely you know, we, we, we get into this thinking we're going to help people and make a difference and, and feeling the futility and the sort of downstream mopping the floor while the faucet continues to pour is it is, it is, it is absolutely sort of an insult to our sense of integrity about what we're, what our purpose is, what we're doing with our lives. So um, I, I, yeah, I kind of live to inspire <laughs> Uh, providers to to imagine working in a system that that worked. So anyway, setting that aside for a moment, yeah, thinking about um, a story I can share, yeah. So uh, 
we had a participant come to us to our community site, which is not in the clinic. It's it's off site at a freestanding location that operates just like any other pharmacy and that we take referrals from lots of surrounding clinics um, and hospital systems and, and serve people there. Um, we had somebody show up. She was a middle-aged African-American woman with multiple chronic conditions, long-standing depression, uh, long-standing hypertension and joint pain and all kinds of things going on. And she, she was dubious at first. She kind of came in and she was like, first of all, why the heck is somebody hugging me at the door? <laughs> Who the hell are you anyway? And um, I don't dance, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, I think one of the ways that we train our, our whole team is that we're going we're gonna to engage people with higher levels of humanity and vitality and joy and vulnerability than they're used to. So their first week can often be like, whoa, what is this? Um, but she pretty quickly settled in and she's, you know, funny as hell and irreverent. And she sort of started to quickly transition from being a party goer to a party thrower, right? Mm. Pretty quickly. We, we knew that, that she was part of the source of the, the vitality and the joy that was happening in the community. And, uh, when her four months was up, it was time to graduate. Her response was like, Oh, hell no. Like, I'm not leaving. (laughs) This is what I do on Tuesday nights. Uh, So she she applied to be a peer leader and has actually been with us for about two years now. She just, you know, she's just sort of a standout peer leader. And she loves to stand up and talk about how, you know, for the first time in 20 years, she's not on psychiatric meds. And... You know, she she can not only walk, she can dance and she can jump a little bit. And she loves to show us that she can jump and get off the ground. And One of the more exciting things is that she uh, helped us discover that it, we could get free produce from a big produce distributor when they had overage that they didn't know what to do with. So it didn't just go to rot. And so she actually now drives into San Francisco, which in traffic is no small deal No doubt. once a week and then picks up, you know, four or 500 pounds of produce, loads it into her car and then drives it to us. And that provides free produce to participants at two or three of our weekly sites. So she, she has just, um, she has reminded me that people need not only to receive, to be a, to be contributed to, but they need to know themselves as a contribution. Wow. Right. You know, the Dalai Lama is so fond of saying people need to be needed. Mm-hmm. And this is a woman who was sort of on the outskirts of, of the social system and now knows herself as needed and depended on and appreciated. So if we can create pathways for that to happen, that's something I'm all in for. Wow. And you think with her, that's one member and now she helps facilitate uh, open wellness activities like it, it just it's a beautiful cycle like it's just it just allows for so much growth within her circle and beyond it does you know here's here's the thing that gives me a lot of hope um here in the east bay so oakland is where it's our first site and we now have lots and lots of graduates in the area and at some point about a year and a half ago we had enough graduates that were pissed off about being graduated out of the program that they came together and said, we're going to, we're going to do our own thing. And so 
uh, OSW for Open Source Wellness, they're calling it OSWX. So you know how there's like TED Talks, TEDx, yeah. It's like the independently organized version. And so OSWX meets weekly in the East Bay, and it's entirely pure run. And they get together and they do the same sequence of things that we taught them. So check in, physical movement, mindfulness somebody sort of shares their story and then they have snacks or a meal and connect with each other. And that is what, that's what kind of gives me hope for humanity because programs end, right? Mm -hmm. But, but social institutions, right? Like church or like AA, while imperfect, you don't graduate from them, right? You, you stay engaged for life. So it is my hope that as we expand to other cities and I don't know. Maybe Canada's next. What's up? Uh, What's up? (laughs) Yeah. Let's do that. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Elizabeth, I got to thank you so much for sharing this incredible initiative that you and your partner have started. OSW, Open Source Wellness. You guys are doing some magical things and it's all, it's what I love to hear. You're solving healthcare in your own way and it's, and it's having a massive impact on so many people around around you. So thank you so much for, for appearing on the show. Thank you so much. And just know that, you know, we are prepared to help people uh, deliver this in their communities. We, we both come and implement it and we train and license groups to do that. So opensourcewellness.org is the place where folks can find out more and contact us and get it going wherever they are. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we will talk again soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much.